Okay. All right. Here we go. Here we go. Hello, everybody, and welcome oh. to another episode of Dirt Nap City. Don't hurt yourself. <laughs> oh man, it's we do it for the we do it for the people, Alex, for the fans. Was, How are you uh, today? It was kind of like a Peter Brady introduction there. Uh, uh, no, it was intentional. It was intentional, actually, um, and I think you'll understand why in a moment. Oh but, wow! Uh, yeah, man. Clues already. Clues right out of the gate. But I'll tell you, I looked at the weather forecast. So it is September 2023. We're sitting here in our respective studios, uh, Houston and Austin, and it's still 105 here. How's it there? Yeah, it's ridiculously hot. I was talking to somebody today who is from Saudi Arabia, and I said, is this what the weather's like in Saudi Arabia? He goes, oh, it's not as hot as this. <laughs> wow. And, and and they all drive uh, Mercedes and uh, Ferraris, and uh, or is that is that Dubai? Yeah, probably both. Yeah. Um, well, it is hot, but I think it's going to be cooling down. But I'll tell you, it's going to get really hot for the next hour because I've got a guest or a, or a resident of Dirtnap City that is so hot, it's going to just burn your face off. Is that another clue? Yeah. Yeah. It is. Yeah, yeah. Really? I got two. Uh, can you name it already? No. Let's see. You uh, screamed and hurt. Uh-huh. I said, hello, everybody. <laughs> yeah. How is that a clue? How is that a clue? You'll know. You'll, as soon as you as soon as you hear, you'll know. And the heat. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. No, I don't. The, have he, the it heat's yet. the heat's might be a little confusing. You'll you'll get it, but it's it's less. The voice is a little more of a thing. But this person was born August fifteenth, nineteen twelve, in Pasadena, California. Nineteen twelve. Yeah. Another another child of the twentieth century. Your favorite century. Yeah. Yeah. One of the better centuries. Yeah. Okay. In Pasadena. She was uh she was six foot two inches tall. Wow. And she didn't become famous until she was in her fifties. So she led led um she lived into her nineties. So she led so, a little less than half of her life being famous. That was a tall woman that was famous in the nineteen sixties, you're saying. Uh yeah. Yep. She started she started her fame started in the late sixties, early seventies. I've got it, I think. Mm-hmm. Okay. I think I've got it. You want, you want me to give you another clue or or no, you can no, for I, it. I, I'm gonna try to guess. Okay. Is this Julia Childs? <laughs> yes. Wow. Either you're smarter or my clues are getting better. Well, now the the uh the uh, introduction makes sense, the heat makes sense. Yeah and I know she was a a tall woman, and I never. When I think about it, I never really see anything about her when she was young. No, I haven't seen any of the movies that came out about her. Oh yeah, I've watched a couple. I've watched a couple in preparation for this, so it's it's going to be deep. She was. Um, she was. It is Julia Child, by the way. It's not S, not Childs. Some people oh. say Childs, but um, I, I think I just did. I think you did, but that's a mistake a lot of people made. I think I actually have made it in the past. So um, we'll 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 part. We'll make that part of the uh, learning experience here on Dirt Nap City. Julia Child, she actually was born Julia Carolyn McWilliams. Um, but one one other fun fact I was going to give you to really throw you off the clue is that during World War II, she actually volunteered for a government agency. It was a spy agency, like the precursor to the uh, CIA, and that agency 
Um, she was involved in creating and developing a shark repellent to keep sharks away from underwater explosive and explosives and mines. Wow, that wouldn't have helped at all. I know, I know, I know, but that was such a cool thing, right? I mean, but yeah, that would have just thrown, you're like, oh, a scientist. Um, she was also right. the first woman inducted into the Culinary Institute of America's Hall of Fame. Now, right out the gate, I'm, um, I was surprised she's American. I thought yes. she had an accent. She did. I mean, that's just it. She had this kind of crazy voice that everybody thought maybe was English, but it was actually from California. Julia Child presents the Chicken Sisters. Miss Broiler, Miss Fryer, Miss Roaster, Miss Caponet, Miss Stewart, and old Madam Hen. But we're spotlighting Miss Roaster of the Year, measuring in at 14, 15, 14. We're roasting Miss Chicken. Yes, I don't know. It was an unusual voice. Um, nobody's i mean several people referenced it during my research and in the movies and the documentaries that you know they said she had this strange voice as a matter of fact the first tv producer she ever worked with remembers her calling the station and he remembered her because of her unusual voice but no she was born in california raised in california uh born to a family a very upper middle class family john mcwilliams jr he was a princeton graduate and a prominent land manager her mother was also named Julia Carolyn uh, Weston. That was her um, maiden name. She was a paper heiress and the daughter of the lieutenant governor of Massachusetts. So kind of old money. Are you going to continue to do that accent throughout the, the show? Do you want me to? <laughs> it's hurting my ears, actually. <laughs> okay. Uh, no, no. But I do have some good clips um, where, where we'll hear the, okay. the real thing. Such a unique voice. It is, it is, and I'm glad. I'm glad you got the heat and the accent uh, part. Oh, yeah. You know, as clues. I'm here. But, um, I'm here for the clues. As a matter of fact, you might not have got it without the accent, right? Or did did uh, did the famous in your fifties and being tall thing was that enough? I don't know. We'll never know. Well, she was the oldest of three children. Her brother was actually six four, and her other sister was reportedly six five. Her her brother was John. Her sister was Dorothy, and her mother is quoted to have said, "Good heavens, I've produced eighteen feet of children." <laughs> <laughs> I love that quote. Ironically, she grew was up that in the movie. Uh, was that yeah, in the movie? Yeah, it was in the movie. Are you serious? Movie. Yeah, yeah. Her her. Well, she it, said that in the movie. Well, her mother wasn't. Her mother died in uh, 1937. But no, but, but did anyone say that in the movie? Yes, they said her mother was often quoted as saying, "I produced 18 feet of children." It's mm. um, a good line. Yeah, she she did um, grow up rather wealthy in Pasadena, California, and the house actually had a cook, um, servants, the whole nine yards. She never learned how to cook though when she was young. She had no interest. She played tennis. She was kind of a sporty person. She rode bicycles, um, you know, ran track, all that kind of stuff in uh, her younger years, and then went to Smith College and graduated in 1934. But ultimately, her father did not expect her to do much. He wanted her to marry somebody, a doctor, a lawyer, a banker, somebody like that. And, you know, he was very conservative. And I think that's kind of what young women did in the early 1900s. Do you think? Yeah, of course. It was, and I don't think there's anything by today's standards that sounds sexist, but I think that's that's that was what people did back then. As a matter of fact, she she actually was um, uh, proposed to by someone, and she said no. 
Um, and she was so adamant that when World War II broke out, she decided to leave home and she had one skill at that time. She was a typist. She could type. So she joined the Office of Strategic Services. Now, that was the precursor to the CIA, like I said. Mm-hmm. And she was in the typing pool at the OSS. Apparently, you know, she said she made several references in the movies I watched about being a spy because I think that was a spy agency. But really, she was typing top secret documentation. Um, but she said she never had the chance to go into the field, but she thought she would have been a great spy because who would have suspected a, a 6'3", 6'4", woman? Hmm. On the other hand, um, you can't really be a wallflower at 6'3". Yeah, true. I mean, as a, as a big woman, I mean, you're kind of always attracting attention when you walk into a room. So yeah, yeah, you can't true. slink around in the dark, that's for sure. Well, speaking of attracting attention, um, she was in Sri Lanka. And she met her husband. So again, I said her uh, Julia's um, maiden name was McWilliams. Well, she met Paul Child in Sri Lanka um, in 1944. And she was actually um, immediately drawn to him. He was a, he was not a very tall man. She was much taller than him. He said he, he liked her legs. He was really into her legs. You know, she had a long... She had a lot of it. She had a lot of legs. And he was a graphic designer and a photographer. He was actually in charge of some maps that they were doing over there. Um, the government was mapping the area, and he drew the maps you know, as a graphics person. Um, he was kind of a Renaissance guy. He was an artist, a photographer. He loved food. He was a good cook. He spoke English and French. Um, and she had a nickname for him. Now, his name was Paul. Uh, she called him Peasky. <laughs> Uh, but but she re- he's really the one that taught her to appreciate art, food, and culture because her family, you know, while they did do sports, um, they were very conservative and, you know, they didn't really consider culture, art to be important when, when she was growing up. Hmm. So after, after they were in Sri Lanka, they went to China. And then when World War II was over, they ended up coming back to the U.S. to get married. Now, not all was rosy because Julia's father, John, and Paul really didn't see it eye to eye. As a matter of fact, um, Julia, her family had been Republican and Paul was a Democrat and she actually switched parties and became more liberal after meeting him. And that, of course, bothered him. Apparently, there was a time when uh, after her mother had passed away, this is when they were living in France. Um the family, John, his, her, um, Julia's stepmother, and maybe, maybe it was just two of them came to France and they tried to give them a, a kind of tour of France because the family, had, her, her father had never been there before. And apparently all he did was gripe. No. <laughs> so maybe that's a universal kind of thing. Maybe that just happens, but he, he was not, he was kind of a curmudgeon from what I understand. Oh, wow. Wow. And was he much older? Well, he was born, the father was born in the 1880s, uh, 1880 actually, and died in 1962. So yeah, I mean, he was, I guess she was born, he was 32 when he had Julia. So yeah, but um, they, uh, Julia and Paul ended up moving back to France after they came home from World War II. They, They were in California for a little while, got married, moved back to France. And Julia's first meal in France changed her life. This is what she said. It was um, the La Corion. 
Have you heard of this? La Corion. It is the oldest inn and restaurant in France, located in Raoun. And take a guess, uh, which is the capital of Normandy, take a guess when it was founded. Oh, geez. Uh, maybe, I mean, that would have been... The things in it's it's so different than here. Right, right. You you would say like eighteen eighteen ninety two here, and that would be a long time ago. Oh, even thirteen forty five. That blows my mind. Yeah, something an old restaurant here would be something that was like forty years old. And I believe it's still actually open. La Corion. It's L A space C O U R O N N E. So if any if we have any listeners in Normandy, um, let us know if. Uh, La Corion is still open. And by the send way, us a give, send us a gift card. For that <laughs> yeah. place. <laughs> yeah. What, what, what do 50 bucks get you there? Probably get you a <laughs> glass of water and some, some, uh, snails. it might not be expensive, you know? Yeah, it's true. Um, so she, she had a quote there and she said, one taste of that food and I never turned back. So that was kind of her introduction to French cooking, which she, she had been like, like I said, she'd been in Sri Lanka. She had been in China. She had been, deployed overseas during the war effort, but she really found French cooking to be the the quintessential, which I think the world agrees it is, right? Have you been to France? I have only been once for a conference um, when I worked for a software company. I was in Nice and uh, what's the place nice. where the, where in Cannes, the, the conference was actually, we flew yeah. into Nice oh, and then the conference was in Cannes. Yeah. I had I don't know. I've not. You had a Le Big Mac? <laughs> no, it's a Royale with cheese, right? Did you have a Royale with cheese? I did not, no. Um, what do they call Whopper? <laughs> they call it Le Whopper. No, he says, uh, I don't know. I didn't go to Burger King. <laughs> That's right. Wow. Um, well, I have been to Paris uh, a few times, and yeah. um, the first meal I had did change my life. I was ready to give it all up and and uh, do like she I could see that you could see why um, people would want to move there yeah and then the next time we went even though there's thousands of restaurants in Paris we went to the same place because it was just so good and so uh, the name of that place was uh, La Rotisserie de Beaujolais nice. and it is um, in the heart of Paris and it's just a simple roasted chicken and mashed potatoes and it um well, like we say here, it'll make you slap your mama. Was it was it as good the second time? Yes. Yes. It was that's what's crazy about yeah, it. Yeah. I was gonna say usually you get this built up sense of a restaurant, like this was the best, and then you go back and you're like, eh, you're setting yourself up for disappointment. Right. And the three of us, it was the same people that went the first time. It wasn't like we were trying to bring anyone else there. It was just really, really good. It's good, it's affordable, it's a nice, it's very French, it's the atmosphere that you want. Nice. Um, my son and I like um, escargot. You mentioned snails a yeah, second ago. Yeah. Think it's just wonderful. Just everything about it. Is, I don't think I've ever great. actually had escargot. It's really, really good. Yeah, I, I, I we, do like. Um, I do like. Uh, what are the fish eggs? Caviar. I do like caviar. I like the saltiness of it, but I, I don't think I've ever actually have had escargot i should give well then when we got back we went on this escargot kick where we were trying to find good escargot around here and it's just not the same oh of course not of course not when you're getting snails out of galveston bay it's just not (laughs) the same well interestingly that was kind of the the um thing that that uh they wanted to do or julia wanted to do when she wrote a cookbook was allow 
Americans to make French food with American ingredients. But but that's jumping ahead. I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna back up before they started the cookbook. Um, so do you know the famous famous cooking school in in Paris? Cordon Bleu. Yep, Le Cordon Bleu, oldest cooking school in Paris. Top chefs, people who are, and I don't mean I don't mean Japanese guy uh, top chefs. Um, it's the Iron that? Chef. Iron Chef. Oh yeah, not Iron Chefs. Top chefs, mostly men. And interestingly, at the time that she was there, there was actually a um, government thing, a government program. I didn't know. I didn't. I wasn't clear if it was the French government or the U.S. government, but they allowed. GIs, uh, soldiers who would come back from World War II to do training. And one of the options was to train as a chef at Short on Cordon Bleu and the government would pay for it. So she decided she wanted to go to Le Cordon Bleu. She got very into French cooking and, you know, again, was one taste of that food and I never turned back. And so she went and she was one of, uh, she was the only woman with a, an entire class of men. And I think the classes were like 10 to 20 people at that time. It's always, um, it's always been curious to me how, um, even so, especially back then, how women were supposed to be in the kitchen, but all the great chefs were men. So even as a chef, a woman couldn't break into that world, even though that's what they were expected to do back then is, is cook. That's kind of crazy. Yeah. Yeah. Cooking for your husband, cooking at home, cooking for your family. But when it came to the, you know, a lot of it, um, According to what I've learned in this process of studying uh, Julia Child, a lot of it had to do with the fact that at that time you were cooking. It was a um, uh, what's the what's the word for um, when when it's high status uh, prestigious. It was a prestigious mm. job, and that was part of why it was reserved for men. And it was also a, a kind of a macho atmosphere, you know. Believe right. it or not. I, Still I, is, I think. Yeah? Yeah, I think so. Quick, quick question. Have you watched this show called The Bear? Oh, I love The Bear. Yeah. Did you watch the whole thing? Yeah. Yeah, we, we just finished it a couple of days ago. That's actually part of why I picked um, Julia Child. I wanted to do some somebody from the world of cooking. And yeah, it was such a fantastic show. And you kind of look at how it starts with uh, one of the characters who's not wanting to follow the program and is really mm-hmm. kind of bitter and and like why do we have to do it that way and and it's very sexist as well to some of the mm-hmm. women in the show and how he kind of changes over once he goes to that really nice restaurant and realizes right. what excellent service looks like um yeah uh, amazing show if you haven't seen the bear i think it's on hulu yeah yeah it's so. a great show now from what i understand about french cooking it's very technical like that's why it's so hard it's very it's right very technical you don't just throw things together um, but there's a very precise way of doing things. And if you don't do them, so like omelets and souffles and some of those things that are really tough, if you don't do them, you'll fail. I mean, they just won't turn out the way you want them to do. And to and, and you're right. teeing something up for me because um, that was how France, France really figured it out. They, they made it a science, you know, it was, but it was not just a science. It was art and science, the perfect combination of those two things. What um, what happened is that because Julia had been going and taking these classes, she actually started to teach cooking classes to her friends, some of whom were Americans who were living over, you know, expatriates, and some of whom were French. Um, and she teamed up with this woman named Simka, 
And they decided after they had been teaching classes for a little while that they actually wanted to make a cookbook. And it, you know, that was led to the cookbook called Mastering the Art of French Cooking, which is one of the most best-selling cookbooks of all time. And still. And is still, still yes, there's I think they did three or four editions of it. And but Julia felt that cookbooks at the time didn't give enough detail, didn't give enough instruction, didn't give enough um, kind of how-to, and exactly what you said. She wanted it to be a science uh, that was down to you know measuring everything and explaining why things happened. They spent 12 years working on this cookbook, and they were initially offered a, um, a deal by Houghton Mifflin, not Dunder Mifflin, but Houghton Mifflin, to... Uh, to make the cookbook in 1953, spent 12 years. And at that time, she and Simca, and they had a third partner whose name I don't know, but another French person, they didn't live in the same city. So Julia would type up drafts in English, type up the recipes. She would type them in triplicate. She would send one to Simca to, to review she would send one to her sister, Dorothy, back in the U.S. to actually try because Dorothy had to find the ingredients and, and tell her how difficult it was or how, you know, how it worked out. And then she would keep one for herself. Literally, you couldn't copy and paste, right? You had right. to, you had, she had to type it in triplicate, do it over the mail. Anyway, it took them 12 years to get their first draft of this cookbook. And then, you know, have what you happened? read any, have you read? Oh, so what happened? Um, it was rejected. Oh, Wow. <laughs> uh have I read any of it? I the only parts I read were when I was uh doing studying this studying Julia. So I saw some outtakes from it. It so was is it easy very to read? detailed. No, no. As a matter of fact, here's what the publisher said when they rejected it. It is a big cookbook of elaborate information and might well prove formidable to the American housewife. She might be frightened by the book as a whole. They rejected it, and they said they wanted more of a, quote, mix and stir cookbook. Yes, and that would be my gut feeling is that she didn't read the, the well, I mean, who am I to say? She ended up selling you know millions of copies, but I would think it's the kind of book, even though she sold a lot, I bet it's not a lot that people read and tried those things. It would be incredibly intimidating. Well, and again, to get the ingredients is difficult, right? Because at that time... Um, well, that was a time period. So the 50s, the 60s, and the 70s even. What, what do you think of when you think of um, uh, dinner? Oh, it, it, especially at that time, it was about TV dinners. And, yes. And, yes. And getting stuff ready quickly. Foods. Especially once women started going back to the uh, workplace and everything. This seems like it might have been more popular earlier. than, But 50s and 60s would be the wrong time to, for this something this doesn't seem like it should have worked. It well, and and you, I'll explain why it did work here in a minute. But the reason that um, the reason that it wasn't popular before that was because a America was pretty isolationist prior to you know most average Americans didn't know that much about Europe, didn't know that much about the culture, didn't know much about the food, and after World War II, there was a lot more blending of cultures and a lot more interest in overseas a lot more interest in in uh that sort of thing but absolutely exactly what you said tv dinners convenient food um they were saying that one of the biggest one of the biggest things that was served during the late 50s 
and early 60s was grilled spam with slices of pineapple. <laughs> but so, think about it, though. What, to what you're saying is that uh, probably 30% of the men in the 50s had been to France you know, yeah. through, the, through yeah. the war, yep. but they got a taste of like French bread and, you know, the, just Ooh, some la, of the la. finer. Yeah. I mean, some of those finer things. That's, that's really interesting. It makes sense. And we talked about this a little bit with uh, Chef Boyardee that. Yeah. Uh, yeah. That was actually Italian, his, that was his, uh, his strength was that he made it convenient. He was, he was the king of convenience foods. Right. That's true. So, so uh, aside from Chef Boyardee, I was trying to name as many convenience food brands, you know, the the ones that would be on the label of a TV dinner, and I only came up with seven. Can uh, can you got any got any for me? Uh, Swanson, yes, king, the, absolutely the king. They they were yeah. the king. Um, and and funny fact, the summer camp I went to, uh, two of the kids that were there at that time were Swanson, like that family. So, oh, that's that's Tucker Carlson's family. Did you know that? No. Yeah, that's where he that. gets all his. He's a, uh, a Swanson heir man. to the Swanson fortune. Well, that Hungry man. Hungry, Hungry man. man. Yes, yes. That that's on my list. Um, lean cuisine. I don't know if lean cuisine came out until later. Oh, like, you're talking about back then or yeah, now? Yeah, yeah. I'm talking about back in the day. That would be a modern one. Oh, so those are the two big ones: Swanson and Hungry, Hungry man. man. Libby's. Oh, Libby's. Remember, if it says Libby's, Libby's, Libby's on the label, 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 it tastes better, better, better on the table, table, table. So these TV dinners are just frozen foods. Well, Libby's made TV dinners. Yeah, but is that what I'm going for here? Well, these were all all my list was, uh, but yeah, what what were some other convenience? Well, I mean, I was thinking about Mrs. T's or Miss, what was it? The fish sticks? Oh, Uh, yes, yes. Was it Uh, Mrs. T's? Was it Captain something? Yeah, maybe. I don't know. Uh, there was there was uh, Morton, the the salt makers. Uh, they the Mort- made- Trust the Morton fishermen. Yep, yep. There was Rosarita. Remember Rosarita? Um, no, Rosarita was was well. Here's what's interesting about Rosarita is and Swanson actually they had what they called Mexican style frozen dinner. It was never called mm. a Mexican dinner. It was called Mexican <laughs> style. Yeah, um, inspired by right, right. <laughs> so uh, there was also a banquet. Was another oh, one. Oh, how could I forget Banquet? And and I've actually got an ad pulled up here from Banquet. Uh, it was for a turkey dinner. This was mm-hmm. uh, this was Banquet turkey dinner, which included. Uh, let me let me get, let me had the green beans. Well, peas and mashed potatoes. Not, oh, not beans, peas. peas. Yep, and mashed potatoes. Yep, and then it had a little cobbler, right? No, this one I have to send. I'll send you this image. It was actually uh, just three cranberry sections. Just the turkey with gravy. The green beans with butter and the um, mashed potatoes with butter. Yum. But but here's here's what it says. Here's the here's the ad. This I think this was an ad out of a magazine I'm looking at. It says, "Ye Indians are hungry tonight. Be a friendly pilgrim and serve your little tribe a real turkey dinner. Besides tender slices of succulent turkey, there's old fashioned dressing, fresh tasting peas, and mashed potatoes. Expensive, indeed. No, just tastes expensive." Banquet frozen foods. Thank goodness for banquet. Oh, nice. And banquet, if you're listening, that was a free read there. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> and 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 the picture has a housewife with a pilgrim hat on. Oh, nice. <laughs> nice. 
Anyway, so so they I'm did guessing have, Julia Child was not down with with um, well, with funny TV thing, dinners. So so funny thing, I don't know about TV dinners. Well, she was a very adventurous person, but apparently later in life, she really liked Costco hot dogs. Like that was oh. one of her guilty pleasures later in life. But I want to I want to just real quick before we get back to Julia Child, I want to read you some more names of some of these. Um, some of these dinners that were frozen meals in the sixties and seventies, there was the Morton three course chicken and dumplings. That's pretty standard. The Morton beef patty, Twinkie supper, beef patty, Twinkie, uh, beans and Franks. That was a Swanson Swanson jam, corned beef hash. That was a Swanson, uh, jam and then Polynesian style dinner. So it wasn't, they wouldn't just call it Polynesian. It was Polynesian yeah. style, Mexican style, German style, and mm. then Libby. Libby had one called Safari Supper. <laughs> what was that? I, I don't know. I don't know. I just saw the name and liked it. Um, I guess you you eat your um, you eat one of the Rockefellers. So right. <laughs> that's a callback. That is a callback. Anyway, uh, yeah. At the time um, when all this was going on, they were trying to get their book published. It got rejected. Uh, they also had another hit. Uh, she and Paul had another devastating blow. Um, Paul had been working in the U.S. government. This was kind of during the McCarthy period. I think it was when people were being called communists, and they came, brought Paul and Julia back from France, and they said Paul was a communist and a homosexual, and he uh, had to prove he wasn't, and he, you know, by all accounts, wasn't either. How do you do things. that? Um, uh, well, I guess that was a problem, huh? <laughs> maybe so, but it it really kind of he got very angry. He took an he took an early retirement from uh he had, he had been working in the Foreign Legion or the um you know the I don't know whatever it's called uh, when you're working overseas for the government. He had been a mm-hmm. diplomat or something along those lines. He took a early retirement and they decided to move to Cambridge, Massachusetts. Now, in, in uh, at that time, Julia was still shopping the book around. She sent it to several publishers, and a publisher by the name of Knopf, K-N-O-P-F, um, took the manuscript, and a woman named Judith Jones got it, and she realized it had potential, and she told the publisher, who I guess it was a family-owned business, uh, you know, Harvey Knopf or, or Barry Knopf or um, something like that. Uh, she told him that no, who was the guy? Um, who was the guy on Mad Magazine? Um, Alfred was, E. Newman. Yeah, it was Alfred E. Knopf, I think, because um, oh. I remember hearing that and thinking maybe they're making fun of this guy. Anyway, Alfred E. Knopf. She told him that he had to publish this book. It was going to be popular, and he basically said that he wasn't convinced it would be popular, but she had a lot of uh, passion, and that you know he appreciated that and thought she would try to try her best to make it work. So he decided to publish it, but he said if it sold one copy, he would eat his hat. Apparently, that was a thing back there. If something you did, didn't believe could happen happened, you ate your hat. I think I've even used that phrase, but I've never actually. Yeah. If if anybody fun. listens to Dirt Nap City, I'll eat my hat. I think you said that on day one. Oh wow! Yeah, you got a yeah. you got a hat? No, I mean <laughs> I have lots of hats, but. Well, here's where yeah. here's where it all kind of started to change. So 1961, she and Simka went on a book tour to promote the book. And they really, that wasn't a thing back then. Book tours were, you know, 
the, the, the term didn't really exist, but they went around to different universities, different libraries, different bookstores, trying to promote the book through the U.S. Simka came over here. You know, she was a French woman, lived in France. And Julia got invited to be on a show in Boston. Um, now, you know the PBS station there, WGBH, right? Pretty famous mm-hmm. PBS station. There was a show called I've Been Reading, and it was sort of a book club. You know, here's what I've been reading kind of not, not like I've been reading like yay for me, but here's what I've been reading. And the author had decided, or the host had decided that uh, Julia's book, um, Mastering the Art of French Cooking, was something I've been reading. And so Julia had the opportunity to go on the show. Well, before the show, the day that she's supposed to go on, or the day before, she calls the station, she dials up the number, asks for the producer, and and this is where the producer called out her voice and said something basically like, um, you know, Julia called the station and I remember this woman who sounded, you know, I couldn't place her accent. She had a very unique voice and she <laughs> wanted a hot plate to go on this, on this, uh, book show. Mm-hmm. The guy said, well, I don't, we don't do that, you know, ma'am, uh, but we'll do our best. So they ended up getting a hot plate, putting it on there on the show. And while they were, um, on the show, she cooked an omelet for the host. She oh. made a proper omelet. And, you know, and, they say that. Did you're not a chef unless you can make an, an omelet? Oh, I didn't know. I didn't know. You've that. never heard that. That's that's kind of a thing. And in fact, on the bear, when she makes an omelet, there, that's right. She makes it for the pregnant woman and puts the puts the chips, the, the yeah, the, uh, yeah, sour cream and onion chips. I mean, that's 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 a mark of like you're, you're really something if you can make an omelet. Okay. Apparently, it's a very hard thing to do is to make a proper omelet. Well, here, here's here's something that I've never told you. Just like I told you about being in New York on September 11th, I'm going to blow your mind. When I was in college, I came up with an omelet, and it was called the Cheeto omelet. And you basically put Cheetos in an omelet. And mm-hmm. what would happen is the Cheetos would soak up the grease of the eggs. And you know how Cheetos are already just magically delicious? I'm not mm-hmm. talking about the puffy ones. I mean the traditional crunchy Cheetos. Yeah, yeah. I, my mouth is watering just thinking about it. You uh, You put a little cheese on top as well. But Cheeto omelet was my creation, and I guess I must be a chef. And, and I bet you there's places right now that are making those, especially hot Cheetos, because that's a thing now. Everything they, they yeah, use like that, like, yeah, they use hot Cheetos now as as um, as a cooking as an ingredient. Well, I, this was in this was in the late 80s early 90s, so I'm yeah. way ahead of my time. You uh, does, way ahead does your of time. does your son like hot Cheetos and Takis? Oh yeah. yeah. Yeah, Tate Tate too. My son as well. Um well, so basically, I don't know if you <laughs> if you know a whole lot about the history of PBS, but at the time, PBS was just both bow and ring. It was you know, shows about space, but just people talking with whiteboards, a lot of professors talking about math and science and theories and history. There wasn't a lot of exciting stuff going on. And apparently when they made this proper omelet on the show, the phones lit up. It was one of these times when the, the producer said they never got calls and all of a sudden people were calling and saying, who was that woman? I need to get her book. I need to, I want more of that. So he went to his boss, the station general manager, and said, we should try a show, a cooking show. At the time, they didn't have anything set up for that. They didn't have any sort of uh, infrastructure or or a kitchen or anything like that. Apparently, there was a demo kitchen 
from another station that they were able to borrow and they were able to, um, they had to carry it up several, they had to truck it to the station. First of all, carry it up several flights of stairs in Boston. And then they did their very first show. And at the time they couldn't even edit, like everything was done live to tape. So if they made mistakes, they had to do long cuts of everything. And that's kind of where Julia um, learned to improvise. That's where she learned to, you know, kind of go over her mistakes. And they said that she was really inspirational because she was so authentic. People liked the fact that she wasn't, you know, it wasn't edited perfectly so that everything came out perfectly. If she missed or if she made a mistake, she just kept going. And the fact that it was on PBS, she had room to breathe. A lot of those shows, like you say, um, you know, had people kind of droning on. Um, so it was okay. It was perfect, a perfect uh, blend. Did they invent the overhead camera at that time, do you think, too, for the cooking shows oh. have these days? No, uh, I mean, well, they did talk about having to do things like that. Um, so at the time, they were using tube cameras. They were really big, heavy oh, uh, yeah. cameras with tubes in them. And no, not very portable. So, But there's... In, in in a couple of the documentaries, there's some behind the scenes shots where you see people sitting on the floor behind the counter, handing her things and <laughs> pulling things out of the oven and putting them back in like a lot of there was a lot of stuff going on behind the scenes, almost like the Muppet show, because there's a hand that pops up with. Yeah, something. yeah, yeah. Um, so let me just play you a quick clip from this. And this kind of gives you a sense of her authenticity on the show. The French chef is made possible by a grant from the Polaroid Corporation. Welcome to the French chef. I'm Julia Child. You know, we speak of a covey of quail and a gaggle of geese and a pride of lions. Well, this is known as a peep of chickens. That's their official name when they're in group, as they are. And you know, we're always broiling, broiling, and grilling, and baking, and braising, and barbecuing chickens. But what's ever happened to the roast chicken? Here, there's this beautiful, great, big, old, lovely, not old, it's just the perfect type of roaster, about six pounds. And you half the time you can't ever find a roaster like this in the market. There just isn't enough demand for it. And I think it would be useful to know is why... Is this chicken a roaster, and why are these others not? So that was called, it was called The French Chef. And she just brought this energy and fearlessness yeah. to it that people liked. Um, you know, there was no teleprompter. Again, it was live to tape, so they had to do these long takes, and she'd make mistakes. Apparently, actually, they had a, um, they had a uh, cue card that all it said was sweat. And it meant that she was sweating into the food and she had to mop her brow. And that, would, <laughs> that would happen pretty often. So, wow. Yeah. You really. know, what's great, funny about listening to these clips is that it's impossible that it doesn't sound like a parody of her. Yeah. You know, it, yeah. It's, it's, she's been mocked and, and parodied so many times that they all sound fake now. The well, fu funny fake. thing, um, you know, the famous um, skit with Dan Aykroyd. Right. Well, have you seen that one where he cuts his finger and then yeah, he, yeah, he yeah, kind yeah. of bleeds out? That yeah. was one of her favorite skits. She loved oh, she, she, had, she had a copy of that and she would show it to people. Um and apparently it was based on a, an actual real uh situation where she was on like Johnny Carson <laughs> or something and she cut her finger before uh before she went on the show and and wasn't able to um 
wasn't able to do the cooking and stuff. She had another chef, uh, Jacques, somebody there with her that, that actually did the chopping and stuff, but she, she, and, and Carson joked, um, asked her if it was one of the ingredients, like if her finger was one of the ingredients, <laughs> she said, no, <laughs> but well, you know, what's funny is that these people, and we've had a few on the show who get famous later in life, in their life. Yeah. And, uh, I think that we like that when somebody with that much energy and is older comes, it, it almost gives this feeling like you're coming in late. Like I should have known who this person is. So I better get on board right now. Um, and I think she, she had that. I mean, just, you can just hear that from that clip. It just makes you want to go back and watch, you know, watch everything she's ever done. Well, and apparently the first episode they ever did was Bourgognon, Bourgognon, which is beef stew with red wine, uh, on the French chef. And apparently that show was still playing on PBS, you know, on one of the stations pretty much for 50 years straight, they would keep wow. repeating, you know, because a lot of it, they have to fill airtime and a lot of it is, uh, classics and such, but mm. yeah, she just, she just really had this knack for being on camera, being authentic. She would, she would slap the table. She would hammer things. She would hammer, you know, chop things. Like she, she would start one of the episodes by chopping a fish's head off in a close up, And then it would cut to her doing something else or pull out and you'd see her, uh, talking about the fish and flopping it around. Um, also, it was kind of cool because her husband, at this point, you know, he had been uh, sort of McCarthyized and uh, wasn't working. So he kind of got involved in the show, sharpening knives, bringing in ingredients, cleaning dishes. He was uh, very supportive of her success. And apparently, for a man of that time, to not be jealous or to not want his wife, not to feel outshined by her, but rather to really support her and love her was really unusual. Yeah, that's, that's great. And, um, you know, especially at, at their age, but you know, he had, he was probably, he had probably run out of road in terms of what he was going to do. Um, anyways, so it was, it was very convenient that this, this came along. Good for him. Yeah. And well, and Julia actually put it, this was a quote from her. Uh, she said that, you know, there was the key to um, a good marriage was maintain the three F's. Julia's advice for a good marriage was the three F's. Feed your man, flatter your man, and you had to f*** your man. Oh, oh that, that really? Was, that was straight out of her mouth. That was what she said kept her, kept her um, marriage alive. She would feed him, she would flatter him, and she would him. Wow. Yeah. So apparently he wasn't gay. I guess, you know, if, if she if she could have told that to the McCarthy, you know, the government when they were when they were giving him a hard time. Um maybe she did. So the timing was really right. You know, you and I had just talked about um the fact that America was coming out of World War II, the Kennedys were in office, and the Kennedys actually had a French chef in the White House, a pretty famous French chef. So for her to bring French cooking to the average people, and at the time Unlike today, everybody really respected and admired the president, right? No matter who it was, they they looked up to him. And and so I think the fact that the Kennedys had French cooking, she was doing French cooking, uh, it really just kind of stood out. Television was becoming more of a thing, and people were wanting to do get away from just the TV dinners and stuff like that. Yeah. Like you, we said, it, it shouldn't have worked. 
but it, but it was lightning in a bottle. Yeah, and it was probably because of her personality. I mean, think about it now. There's more than one network that all they do is is cook, and she started all of that stuff. Yeah, she was the first rock star chef. You know, before Emerald, before Rachel, before um, Guy, uh, before. Do you remember at the same time or when we were kids, there was another chef that was on TV. There was a couple. Do you remember one of them was the, that Cajun guy, Justin Wilson. Do you remember that guy? Yeah. Yeah. I know the name. Yeah. Yeah. He would be the one that said, I guarantee that. Oh, yeah. That? Yeah. 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 And then there was a guy named the Galloping Gourmet. Do you yes, remember that? Yes. <laughs> I'd forgotten completely about the Galloping Gourmet. Whatever happened to that guy? Wow. I don't even know his name. Well, I wonder if he lives in Dirt Nap City because be <laughs> yeah, I'm sure he, does. That was a long he, time he and ago. Julia are hanging out. Um, I wonder if he was a direct like competitor. Like, hey, I could do that too. Well, you know, it's interesting. You use the term um, uh, "lightning in a bottle." Her husband actually called her cooking sparks from a pinwheel, which I mm. thought was kind of a cool analogy yeah. for it. But she became the the show went really well. I think I said she got paid $50 a show initially. And then of course the show took off. It got better and better. The book sold like crazy, you know, so it was sort of a virtuous circle. The book brought people to the show and the show brought people to the book and people liked her because of her sort of international flair. I think just like you, a lot of people assumed she was English or, or something. My grandmother actually grew up in India when India was a British colony. And she talks a bit like Julia Child. She has a little bit of that, Kelly, you know, (laughs) sing song, sing bird song kind of voice. Um, Yeah. But, you know, interestingly, all that time, she did not ever want to embrace the endorsement of products. She was offered a lot of products to endorse, but she didn't want people to be able to buy their way into the program. She also really identified herself as a homemaker, but never as a feminist. You know, she really considered herself more of a homemaker, but she was an inspiration for women, especially when women wanted to become like a chef outside of the home. Um, She didn't have any children. She was very close to her nieces and nephews. And she, in 1974, actually appeared on a program of uh, someone who we've also highlighted on this show. You want to take a listen? But we had her on the program. And again, this was, uh, it was almost like science because when you think of it, recipes are like science, putting this together and that together. It's a lesson. And she showed the children how to make cookless spaghetti sauce. It was a safe way to prepare something. Now comes the fun, which you do, and you can, what you can do, you can get all this ready in the kitchen and then bring it into the dining room, and then you can toss it and turn it in the dining room. But we had the spaghetti. She had done the spaghetti already, but she made a a, a sauce with olive oil and I forget the different ingredients, and it was so good. Handful of these chopped walnuts. Walnuts and spaghetti. And then a great handful of these chopped black olives. And you've got about, oh, these are about three or four of those green onions that were cut up there. And then a nice big handful of cheese. This you put in as much cheese as you want. That's probably about 
a two-inch square. I would but say. again, it was showing children how that's creative too. Cooking can be creative too, and you can learn a lot from cooking. And a lot of people love it. And and she loved cooking. You could tell. Okay, I think we can. I think we can stop. But I'll yeah. find a clip from that. That was Mr. McFeely. Yeah, uh, you do. You do better th- this than him, by the way. Um, I like the collaborations. I'm always looking for collaborations between people that we've talked about before. Although I didn't hear Mr. Rogers in the background. He, he said he said something about walnuts and spaghetti. That was. Oh, that I was thought that was somebody else, but yeah, that, no, that, that was, was Mr. Rogers. Uh, that's that's really cool. Um, I think one of the reasons she has high energy is she always sounds like she's out of breath. <laughs> yeah, yeah, maybe she was. She always sounds like she just ran to the studio. <laughs> right, right. Um, well, she um, she got breast cancer. She overcame it in the 60s. She became a very um, – she became a very pro-choice and supporter of Planned Parenthood. And even to the point where on one of her book tours after one of the uh, – oh, hold on. Funny thing I just noticed too um, – did you know that the person who played Mr. McFeely was named David Newell? Oh, no. Oh, shout out. <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, didn't we know a David Newell in high yeah. school? Uh, so she became very pro-choice and a supporter of Planned Parenthood to the point where on a book tour, she got picketed. People were picketing because she was a supporter of Planned Parenthood and didn't agree with that. However, early on, kind of when in her younger days, she... Uh, sometimes said insensitive things about gay people. She would use the term homos a lot, uh, but she kind of had a change of heart, not even a change of heart. I don't think she meant it to be offensive. I think it was a little bit of the era she grew up in, perhaps uh, not to say that that was right, but when one of her friends who was gay died, she actually got really involved with uh, preventing AIDS and AIDS awareness and became an activist and you know talked about that pretty often showed up at AIDS events and also Planned Parenthood events. So in 1980, her show started to wane on PBS. She got dropped from some markets and she actually was, um, I guess, more, she decided the best defense was a good offense. And so she quit. She said, I'm not doing the shows anymore if you're not going to carry them in all the markets. She ended up getting work with Good Morning America. And the big difference with Good Morning America, while she had a bigger audience, she had a shorter amount of time. It was just one segment, right? So instead right. of an hour or half an hour to make a dish, she had three minutes and she had to learn to adapt to that. But she I did. Bet she hated that. Really? No, yeah. no, no. She she seemed to love it. And, you know, I think, again, a lot, it introduced her to a bigger audience and a lot of people who didn't know who she was. Yeah. At that point, she was a household name, too. But Yeah. Yeah. I think to older people. But I think, you mm-hmm. know, her big appeal is that she became very intergenerational. And I think a lot of families and especially mothers and daughters would uh, watch the show. And I saw several quotes about this in the reading and the, and the documentaries I've watched about them watching the show, going out, buying the ingredients and actually wanting to uh, have a uh, time to cook together, you know, from her show. Mm. We should do that sometime. So after good morning America, she actually uh, decided to, go back to PBS with a show called Baking with Julia. And that ran from 1996 to 1999. I guess PBS kept records of all the ingredients they bought for that show. Take a guess how many pounds of butter she used in that three-year period. Oh, geez. In three years. I don't I mean, how many shows is that? 
Uh, don't like know. 70, 70 shows or something? I don't know. Tell me. 753 pounds of butter, <laughs> according to PBS. It's French cooking for you. Yeah. Yeah. She she also, uh, she had graduated from Smith College, as I said, I think in 1934. Uh, she had a degree in history, but then later received honorary doctorates from Boston University, Bates College, Rutgers University, Smith College. I guess she got an honorary from there as well. Brown University and Harvard. So she wow. was very well decorated with honorariums. Uh, what does that mean, by the way? You're a you're a college guy. What does it mean to get an honorary degree or an honorarium, honorary doctorate? I mean, it it just means that you're. It's a. It's like given a lifetime achievement or something. It's just an award that somebody gets. It doesn't give you any status or anything. So you like can't that. like you can't like demand more money or teach a no. teach a class or something. No, I don't think so. I don't think it's. I don't think it's good for anything. The university can can claim you as an honorary, uh, but no, you 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 shouldn't go around as insistent to be called doctor something. <laughs> you have an even, even if you degree. have an honorary doctorate. No, oh, no. dang it! That, that's kind of my goal through Dirtnap City is to get an honorary doctorate in interesting dead people and. You know. Yeah, I mean, I think it's something that traditionally people do too when they when you. Um, when they get somebody to speak at a commencement address, you know, they'll give them an honorary degree if they don't have one, but she must've been a wealthy woman though. She was, she was, I mean, you know, she ended up um, living in Cambridge and her husband died. Um, He had a stroke and a uh, heart attack and kind of became more feeble, wasn't able to help out as much, Um, but she loved him. You know, they, they, they had a great marriage. Um, she said of her longevity, because she lived in 94, that I don't consider vegetarianism a sensible diet at all, because you're supposed to have a little bit of everything. How about red meat, which I believe in? As I often said, red meat and gin. Wow. Oh, gin. Was her, that was her quote. Yeah. What year did she die? Uh, she died in 2004, uh, August 13th, two days shy of her 92nd birthday. She died in Monticello, California, and she had a book actually um published posthumously and the very last line of her her posthumously published book was um thinking back on it now reminds me that the pleasures of the table and of life are infinite toujours bon appetit hmm. Hmm. yeah good 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 woman there yeah yeah no she she really i i think you know one of the things they did mention was that she wasn't she did have sort of a um tough negotiation style like even with her cookbooks once she became famous she demanded uh top billing on the cookbooks and more money than Simka even though she and Simka spatted but stayed friends you know but Simka you've never heard of Simka right I don't even no. know her last name um but she you know she she deserved it. She was the famous person. She was the draw. She was the reason that book sold so many copies. It wasn't Simka, but Simka was kind of the one who had actually started the cookbook. She actually brought Julia on. She and her partner brought Julia on because they needed an American, basically, because it was supposed to be American French cooking for Americans. Oh yeah, yeah. So if you can't get enough, you know, if you really want, uh, if you really want more, there's a film called primordial soup with julia child that uh has played at the smithsonian national air and space museum um for years and years wgbh had a series called uh, julia child america's favorite chef 
Um, there is Julia and Julia, or Julie and Julia, which was a thing about, uh, I guess, a blogger who ended up cooking a bunch of his her recipes. Apparently, Julia Child didn't like that very much, but Meryl Streep was in it. Who played? Oh, she was alive when that came out. Um, or was it? Uh, a book? You know what? I think it was a book first. She didn't like the yeah. book very much, or the blog. She didn't like the blogger because mm-hmm. the blogger mentioned her very often. Um, there was uh, Julia the documentary, which uh, came out in 2021 by Betsy West. Um, that's actually one that I watched, and it was really, really great. And then there was this little piece of work that was done for a PBS um, series called uh, Remixed. Have you heard of this? Mm-mm. So they they would take PBS icons and remix them and auto-tune their voices and so here's a little bit of that. What makes a great chef? Well, training and technique, of course, plus a great love of food, a generous personality, and the ability to invent hot chocolate truffles. Meltingly addictive hot chocolate truffles. Balls of creamy chocolate filling that are rolled in fresh crumbs. But some other piece, as long as the dough is relaxed, it's ready to roll. Alex, freshness is essential. I love it when PBS tries to get <laughs> hip. <laughs> right. Right. Stay in your lane, PBS. Stay in your lane. No, it's actually it's it's like three and a half minutes long, and it's kind of in you know, after having immersed myself in Julia Child for a few weeks now yeah. it was kind of uh fun to listen to the whole thing i mean it gets into, gets into chicken and beef and gin and juice and all that good stuff gin, gin and juice <laughs> right did you watch the uh meryl streep movie no 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 i didn't i probably should yeah i was just wondering if how uh, i hadn't even seen a lot of clips of that did I, I bet she did a good job of i bet she had the voice down yeah, yeah. No, I maybe that'll be my uh, entertainment for tonight. Jody's been into it. She's been into all the Julia Child stuff I've been talking about. Ju- jo- my wife is a uh, is also an excellent chef. Went to culinary school and uh, you know digs all this. So, does she make omelets? Oh, she makes she makes killer omelets. Yes, but I bet you every time she makes an omelet, you have to tell her about your Cheeto omelet. <laughs> A- yeah. Anytime, anytime I hear the word omelet, I have to talk about oh my Cheeto. My she went to culinary school, and all she has to hear about is the Cheeto omelet. <laughs> uh, you know, funny thing too, she thinks Cheetos are bad for you. Put some respect on her omelet. R e s p e c t. Well, that's Julia Child, my man. Thank you, thank you. That was interesting. Yeah, uh, it made me hungry. That's for sure. Well, she was definitely one of a kind, and as I said, came along at the right time first rock star chef and and again authenticity right that's really what made her i think uh so well beloved by so many people but if you liked this episode i hope you will definitely follow us on whatever podcasting app you use whether that is uh i think there's one called apple podcasts i think there's one called spotify uh there's one called podcast chaser i know um there's a few others, but there's usually a little follow button. Hit that follow button. It hel- it means a lot to us. And then, of course, please email us, not at Dirtnap City. We would love to hear from you. Um, we, we don't get a whole lot of emails yet, but there's going to be a time when we do, and we're not going to be able to read them all, and you're going to wish you had emailed now 
when we still read them all. Yeah, and if you're getting if you're out to Paris, the uh, the re- the restaurant again is the uh, Rotisserie de la Beaujolais. It's at uh, nineteen uh, Quai de la Tourelle. So, oh, wow! Uh, that's a little 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 uh, little plug for you. What's your What's your favorite restaurant in uh, Houston? Oh, geez. I mean, it, it, so many, so many good restaurants in Houston. So many different categories. All right, just name one. I mean, I, I can't do this. I can't do this. I don't even live I'm in not, Houston. Not, I've I'm got not one prepared for this. Oh, Kim, what's yours? Kim San. Uh, really? I love Kim San. Yeah. 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 I loved I it since, say, since Pancho's high school. Mexican buffet. <laughs> Where you raise a little flag. Yeah. All right, everybody. Thanks for listening. This is Dirt Nap City, and we will be back in two weeks. Be sure to hit that subscribe button. By the way, we have a Facebook page now. If you go there and look for Dirt Nap City, you'll find us. We'll be publishing some interesting facts about interesting dead people on an interesting schedule, which is very irregular. We love you guys. Thanks for tuning in. Bye. Test of a good chef is a perfectly roasted chicken. The lemons, the garlic, the rosemary, butterfree, butterfree, rosemary, rosemary, full, rich, and creamy, suspended in its sauce. You have to watch it. Don't let it cook too long. Beat it up a little bit just to soften it. Fast and tough and rough. And it's gonna show you how you do it. Freshness is essential. That makes all the difference. All the difference. I like to smell something cookies. Makes me feel it. Bring on the roasted potatoes. Bring on the moisture. This is what good cooking is all about. This is what good cooking is all about. Cook and cook and keep on cooking. This is the way to live. Cook and cook and keep on cooking. Everyone gather around the dinner table. Cook and cook and keep on cooking. This is the way to live. Cook and cook and keep on cooking. This is the way to eat. Bon appetit.